Good evening everyone, this is our Soul of the Parsha class for this week. This is Parsha Noach, and the question we want to open today is, what is the role of universal human ethics, or more broadly speaking, humanism in general, being part of the human condition, what is the role of this in the context of Jewish service of God, in the context of Jewish worship? What is the place of just plain humanity, being a good person, a good Zayamensh, as we say in Yiddish, we just be a good man. What is the role of this level of being in the context of the kind of life of holiness that as people who serve God, we want to construct our lives around? So this is our question, and it's very, very vital for the, this parasha. In a, in a very deep sense, this parasha, Parshas Noach, which is located between the first parsha, which is all about the creation of the world and the first generations, and the third parsha, which is all about the coming of Abraham into the world and his, his journey into what is going to become Judaism, his lech lecha, go unto thee, uh, which is really the beginning, him embarking on the, on the Jewish journey, we can say. So in between these two parshots, we have Parshat Noach. And in a way we can say that what Noach is all about is about um, positing in between these, the, the, very, the, the very creation of everything and the Jewish path, we have to construct the level or the ideal of, of, of the ideal human being. What does it mean to be just a, a righteous human being, regardless of nationality, regardless of affiliation, and re even regardless of everything that Judaism stands for. It is like an introduction or a preface to what Judaism is all about. And it's there in, our, in the Torah for a very, very deep and important reason. It, we could have just jumped from Genesis to, which is just an introduction to everything, to life, the universe, and everything, uh, from that to Abraham and the Jewish, um, you know, vision and idea coming into the world. But we didn't. The Torah puts Noach in between. It's a very complex parasha, but it, 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 when you look deeply into what it's all about, and we're going to look at the beginning and the end of it, and to see how they come together, you see it's about the, um, let's say, the strengths and weaknesses of the human ideal, of the humanistic ideal, of saying that humans are in, in the center of everything, that human wisdom and kindness and ethics and philosophy should be at the center of everything. This has uh, a great uh, merit to it, but it also has certain dangers or faults to it. So we're, this, is, this is what Parashat Noach in many ways is, is all about. So, uh, we said last week that this year we're going to focus every week uh, specifically on the first segment of the Parsha. Each Parsha is divided into seven segments, seven aliyot or ascents, because when you read them on Shabbat in, in the synagogue at Shul, you go up to the, to the stage and that's where you read you read that segment of the parsha, so it's called seven ascents. Of course, in a deeper way, each segment we ascend as we read it. So, but this year we're focusing on the first segment of each parsha. So we want to focus on the first segment of 
Noach. What is it all about? The first segment is about God being disillusioned with the world He has created. It was actually mentioned in the last few verses of Genesis as well. In the last few verses we have God being saddened. It's a very powerful emotional image of God being saddened by what came about of His creation, seeing that men, humankind, is constantly thinking evil thoughts, and he's disappointed, and he wants to wipe it away, but Noah took favor in God's eyes. That was the, the end of Genesis. In the beginning of Noah, this is, we're introduced again to Noah, and this idea is reiterated in, in different words, and the main word that repeats again and again is the word corruption. It actually appears five times just in the first segment. And it doesn't appear afterwards, as far as I can remember. Certainly not immediately afterwards. But in the first segment, which isn't very long, five times we have this notion that the earth is being corrupted. That humankind is corrupting its ways and is corrupting the earth itself. And in fact, that same root is used to refer to what God wants to do to the world. God wants to do to the world what the what 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 you but to, to do to humankind what humankind is doing to the world, which is to corrupt them in this case to destroy them, using the flood the deluge, but of course he picks Noah and his family, his wife and his three sons and their three wives, and he says you have to build an ark, and in the ark you have to put uh, male and female of each of the animals so that you can survive the flood. So that's what the first segment is all about. It's about God looking upon his earth, being very, very disappointed by, by the world being corrupted. Out of the five usages of the, of, the, of the root to corrupt, the first three have to do with, with people corrupting themselves and the world, and the final two have to do with God wanting to destroy the world. So it's almost a balance, but it's not really a balance, because he's, he's leaving some people and some animals alive, right? He's, there are three corruptions on the human side, but then there are two counter-corruptions or punishments, uh, which are as a, a, like a reflection of the sin, but it's only twice, not three times, because it's not as uh, total a corruption as what humanity is doing. What humanity is doing is in many ways worthy of, of total destruction, but God is, there's a little bit of mercy entering the picture because he's, he's letting Noah and his family and all the species of the animals uh, survive. So, um, the, another word that repeats itself several times is the word flesh, and another word is the word earth. So we have here humanity in the 10th generation since the creation of Adam and Eve. Noah is the 10th generation, and, and these are his peers, or his, the people living in the same generation. And it took humankind 10 generations of deterioration, beginning, of course, with the first sin of Adam, going on to the Cain murdering Abel, and then, and then various other sins uh, throughout those generations. And after 10 generations, uh, they crossed every line imaginable, and they're corrupting their own souls and their own bodies, and everything is descending to the level of the earth. Humankind is described, again, in the term of flesh, and, in, and, and using the term earth, which is, again, something material and mundane, 
and it's, it's almost as if they forgot that they have souls. They forgot that they were made in the image of God. And another interesting thing is that they're likened to the animals. And in fact, of course, the animals are going to be destroyed as well. The species remain, male and female out of every species, but the, most of the animals, the, the vast majority, are going to be killed, just like the vast majority of humankind. The animals are also sinning, following the sins of man, but not only that, mankind itself is compared to animals. It's as if it's a kind of devolution, that humankind is ethically deteriorating to the point that they, uh, that they behave like animals, or I equate themselves themselves. To animals. So this is, of course, something extremely uh, the worst thing we can we can imagine. Um, in uh, using this as a background, all this is is like uh, an, is like the backdrop for God choosing or recognizing Noah. Noah is different. Noah has maintained, has preserved the memory that he is, as all people are, a son of God, made in God's image, and is a soul within a body, not just a body, is superior to the animals, is not just a, as many science books today call, call us, the human animal, right? Many, many books, scientific books, written in the 19th, late 19th and 20th century uh, centuries, uh, refer to human beings as the human animal, but it's a very degrading term. And in a way, it almost, we can say it almost um, echoes uh, eerily the generation of the flood, that they saw themselves as human animals. There was a famous book called The Naked Ape, written by a famous zoologist. And after writing many books about zoology, he wrote one book about, human, about anthropology, about human beings, and the title was The Naked Ape, right? The noun is ape, and, and the, the adjective is naked, it doesn't have a fur. The Naked Ape, uh, a study, studying, or a zoologist studying the human animal. And even recently I, I heard someone, there was this Zoom lectures that him, me and another person gave to high school students and giving our own perspective on the topic of modesty, modest dress, dress code. And it was very interesting kind of debates, meaning that I gave my position, he stated his position. But one of the things that he said there uh, was extremely difficult for me to hear. He said something about that ultimately we should all be free and happy, and then he said something like, uh, we are all... Uh, um, Homo sapiens cubs, or puppies. Gure homo sapiens. So we refer to us as, and we used homo sapiens, which is man, the, the, the thinker, the thinking man. But then, he, he, because he, he was using a scientific term, it was very easy for him to follow it up, or to add to it, cubs, or puppies, as if we're just uh, animals. So we're homo sapien cubs. And I found it very, very hard to hear. And, and I think those kind of terms echo and in a way repeat um, the, 
the kind of atmosphere that the generation of the flood was all about. And we have to remember that the generation of the flood didn't come about in one moment. The whole idea that there are ten generations leading up to the flood is symbolic of it being a, a gradual deterioration. In the, in the generation of Cain, or of uh, Enosh, you know, second, third generation, uh, they did some bad things, but I, 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 assuming they didn't imagine uh, that it's going to lead to such a radical deterioration that people see themselves as totally undistinct from animals. And, and the idea that there was no distinction is insinuated very, very clearly in the verses opening this parasha, in the verses of the first segment. So, on this background, we have an exception to the rule. The exception to the rule is Noah. Noah is, uh, is a remnant of what humankind was supposed to be. Someone who is a tzaddik tamim, a wholehearted, righteous person. And he... And, and the verse says that he was, and you read it from the Artsford translation, uh, hang on, I have it here. He's described in the following terms. Uh, Noach was a righteous man. He was blameless. That's the article translation for Tamim. We spoke about the word Tamim a few weeks ago. He was blameless or innocent or wholehearted in his age or in his generation. And then it says, Noah walked with God. So, um, so we have this, uh, this exceptional man, an exceptional man who's very radically different than everyone else. He's a righteous person. So he's, there's a huge contrast to his generation. Now, famously, uh, there are two completely opposite interpretations for this term that was used, that he was righteous in his generation. It wasn't necessary for the Torah to say those few words, or actually in Hebrew it's one word, bedorotav. Why add this, that he was righteous in his generation? It, it, it makes it seem that it was only in the context of his generation that he was righteous. So the two contradictory interpretations, and that's going to be, well, we're, that's, that's, that's going to open our, our thought for this week. Uh, first interpretation is, he was only righteous in comparison to all the wicked people of his generation. But if you compare it a few generations later to Abraham, then he's, he wouldn't be considered righteous at all. In later generations, when we have these incredible religious righteous people, uh, he wouldn't, if he would live in the future generation, a generation of righteous people, starting with Abraham onwards, he wouldn't be considered righteous at all. Only... In comparison to his generation, he stood out. But he, he today, or in the generation that ha that has a lot of righteous people, we wouldn't consider him very righteous. Second, totally opposite uh, interpretation. If in that generation that all of his friends and peers and relatives and parents and brothers, all of them were so wicked, he was able to be a righteous person. Imagine what he would be in future generations with righteous people. He would be even more righteous. He would be unbelievably... Maybe he would be more righteous than Abraham. He doesn't say that, but it's implied by this interpretation. If he was able to withstand the temptations of his generations and maintain his righteousness, imagine what kind of an amazing righteous person he would be if all of his friends and family and peers would be righteous as well. So this is a very interesting... It's in the very first... 
uh, it's, it's the, Rashi puts it in, in his interpretation for the very first verse of this parsha. So this is very, very interesting that we have this in the very beginning. Now, often we hear in Torah classes that people stress the first interpretation, but not so much the second one. They stress uh, that he was righteous only in his generation, but then they, they, they make a, a very important point of contrasting Noah to Abraham. And there are several points of contrast, the most famous one being that Noah makes no effort to save other people. Whereas Abraham, in his generation, learning about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, does everything in his power to try and save some more people. He fails, but he tries. And, and Noah doesn't even try. So, and there are some more points of comparison. But w- what is neglected is the first version, the first inter- or the, sorry, the second interpretation, the interpretation according to which Noah is incredibly righteous by any standard. And the only reason he was, and actually we can say it doesn't really contradict, the only reason he, the two interpretations don't, if, according to the Zohar, both interpretations are true, and there is a way of reconciling them. We can say that in actuality, he was a so-so righteous person in compared to future righteous people. But the only reason for this was that that was the education he received. But had he been born, or would he, reinc- would he be reincarnated in another generation, or the same soul would live in a generation filled with righteous people, the same soul would shine incredibly, with incredible light. So this, is, this duality is very, very vital to what this whole parasha is about. And we want to understand this duality, which is really the duality of, as I said in the introduction, of the humanistic ideal. The ideal that a righteous living in this world doesn't require religion, it doesn't require faith in God, it doesn't require Torah or commandments, it doesn't require sanctity, it doesn't require all the complexities of Jewish law. All you need to be in order to be a righteous man in this world is to be a good man, a good human being. And this view is, of course, we all heard, we've all heard it, many of us held to it, many of us still hold on to it, and, it's, and, it, and it, in many situations it appears to be extremely convincing. We look at people who are extremely ethical, good-hearted, considerate, compassionate, and, and they're doing good to their, envi- to their societies and their environments, and they're not observant or religious in any way. And this, again, always poses the question, so if, again, what is the role of human ethics, universal human ethics, in the context of Jewish worship? Does it have any place? If it does have a place, why is it not enough? If it doesn't have a place, why is it mentioned in the Torah? If it has, and if it has a particular place, what exactly is that particular place? Why is it necessary, and why is it also necessary to transcend it or to add something to it? So that's what we want to, to understand. So what really helps us is comparing, this. we're dedicating this year to the first segment, it doesn't mean we can't refer to other segments. So, uh, comparing the first segment to the very final seventh segment, we have some very, very interesting things going on. So first, what are the two segments about? So the first one, again, describes how humanity has deteriorated and is now punishable 
or is going to be punished by the flood. So it really describes what we call Dor HaMabur, the generation of the flood, the, gen- the tenth generation that is sinning. Seventh segment, seventh and last segment, is dedicated to the Tower of Babel. Tower of Babel, that is also a special generation. This is called the Dor HaPalaga, the generation of the dispersion. The, the dispersion being the dispersion of, of the languages. It was one language, it was broken up and dispersed to the four corners of the earth uh, into 70 languages. That's how tradition has it. So these two segments really uh, are, are like they bookend the parsha, and they're very much connected. And many times you can find in the Jewish sages, uh, the sages referring to the generation of the flood and the generation of the dispersal, Doha Mabul and Doha Palaga. And there are similarities to be found and, and contrasts to be found. Um, the, the, the main contrast being that the punishment is absolutely different. The first punishment wipes out almost all of humankind. Second punishment, when the, the builders of the Tower of Babel are creating this huge tower that affronts heaven or seems to be attacking or replacing heaven or, or trying to replace God in some way, uh, not a single drop of blood is shed, no one is killed, they're just their language, their universal language is taken from them and they're dispersed. It's a very different punishment. And yet, these are considered as two archetypal primordial sins, uh, collective sins. We're not talking about the sin of Adam and Eve or the sin of Cain. These are generational sins. And in Chazal, in the Ethics of the Fathers, they talk about uh, there being ten generations from Adam to Noah and then ten generations from Noah to Abraham. And so these two sins are emblematic of these two groups of generations, or sets of generations. The first gen- ten generations culminate in the generation of the flood. Second ten generations, they don't culminate in the Tower of Babel, but the Tower of Babel is the main event going on there. Now, there are some more interesting things going on comparing those two segments. If we look, one of the keys for opening up the Kabbalistic level, unlocking the Kabbalistic meaning of any given uh, portion of the Torah, is looking for God's name or names, and to see exactly which name is being mentioned, and and which names are not being mentioned. And in this case, we have something very beautiful. That the, there are seven main holy names for God that are, when written down, can't be erased and you have to bury them and and you can't utter them unless you're referring to a full verse, the, the holiest one you can't utter in any circumstances. And But the main two that the Torah uses, the first is the name Havaya, the Tetragrammaton, the four-letter name, the most holy name, also the highest name referring to the essence of, of godliness. And the second name is, of course, Elohim, right? It's written with an with a hey, with an H, but we pronounce it with a K. Uh, as I said, not in, because we can't pronounce it outside of saying a blessing or a verse. So these are the two main names. So f- famously, what do they stand for? So the name Havaya stands for God's attribute of mercy, and the name Elohim stands for God's attribute of judgment. Elohim, now we can use the word with a hey, Elohim is also a word referring to human, flesh and blood, judges. Judges in a court are called in the Torah, Elohim. So it's the attribute of judgment. Judgment means you have a law, 
and the law is very clear about something, and it has boundaries and limitations, and of course there are consequences. If you do good, you, you get a reward. If you do bad, you get a punishment. So Elohim is the name of judgment, and it refers also many, many times to the laws of nature and the laws of rationality or reason, because judges have to have to be reasonable. They have to use their sense of logic and thought and rational thought. So Elohim stands for the laws of nature and for reason and for judgment or passing judgment in general. And the name Havaya refers to the attribute of mercy. Mercy is the ability, God's ability, it's a higher name, a deeper name. It's referred to as being enclosed within the name Elohim. There's a, an important verse which says, Shemesh umagen Havaya Elohim. Uh, the, the way the sun relates to its, um, it's something that en envelops it. In, in ancient uh, science, the idea was that the sun is enveloped by some, si some, some sort of case, uh, which diminishes its light. So the idea is that as the sun is, uh, is encompassed by this kind of case, so is the name Havaya encompassed by the name Elohim. Havaya is deeper, more inner, and this is the attribute of mercy, meaning God is passes judgment, but if we pray and address His attribute of mercy, the higher, deeper, more hidden level, then He could bypass His own laws, put them aside, and, and show his mercy to mankind. So, the name Elohim says if someone sinned, he should be killed, and when the name Havaya can interfere and say, well, in this case, we're going to make an exception. Havaya is also something like a first name. It's like a first name basis. It's more personal. It's not the God of the laws of nature. It's the personal God that we can pray to and plead before and ask for his forgiveness and mercy. It, this is, isn't a rational aspect of godliness, it's, an, it's something more enigmatic and deeper, and, and it has to do with him uh, almost using his heart, we can say, as opposed to his, his rational, uh, reasonable side. Now, looking at first and seventh segments of, the, of this Parsha, we can find, very interestingly, that the first segment only has the word Elohim in it. The word Havaya doesn't appear there. And the word Elohim appears there five times, exactly the same number that the root to corrupt was mentioned. And the whole idea of corruption, as we said, was that people are corrupting the world, and then God wants to corrupt or destroy the world as a reaction. This is, is exactly the idea of Midah Keneged Midah, uh, passing judgment in, in a way that's according to the sin that the sin is countered by the punishment. So, just as we had five times the, the verb to corrupt, we have five times the name Elohim and only the name Elohim. Jump to the seventh segment of this parsha. The word Elohim is nowhere to be found. Only the word Avaya is to be found. And how many times does it appear? You guessed it, it's exactly five times. Those two words, those two names, appear throughout the parsha, but we don't have such a clear cut symmetrical, uh, as we said, book-end uh, structure, like we do, looking at the first and seventh segment, first segment five times, just like two hands, five times Elohim, last segment five times uh, Havaya. What does this mean? So we can say, 
the following. We can say that the generation of the flood that corrupted its ways, that became like animals, that compared themselves to animals, they were indistinguishable from animals, that only became flesh and blood, and forgot that they were created in the image of God. How do we say image of God? Tselem Elokim. They sinned, the generation of the flood, sinned specifically, not just against God in general, but their sin was against the attribute of Elokim in particular. They didn't even get to Havaya. They didn't even dream about Havaya or try to even imagine what it means. They were all about worshipping nature and physicality and materiality and the body and the body's desires. When you just worship nature, you don't see any version, any level, any attribute, any name of God. So then the lower aspect of God, the, the more revealed aspect of God, God, the rational ruler, the just judge that passes judgment on humankind, even that level is sinned against because they, they just, they, they, they completely forgot God altogether. So the first generation rebels against the notion of Elohim, and it creates a world with no law and order. Everything is its a state of anarchy. Anarchy and debauchery and absolutely no boundaries. They didn't even have any human judges that could be called by the same name Elohim. It was just a state of total anarchy, a war of all against all, as many philosophers refer to this kind of primordial state of, of mankind. Noah, of course, is different. Noah sanctifies the name Elohim by remembering he, that he was created in the image of God and by following God's law to the letter of the law. He told him, build an ark, he built an ark, he told him, go inside, he told him, take the animals. He doesn't argue, he doesn't uh, ask, maybe some other people should join. You don't argue with the judge. The judge passes judgment and Noah is very... Uh, uh, follows this line very, very carefully, very, you know, straightforwardly. So Noah builds the ark and, in a way, saves the name Elohim and sanctifies the name Elohim and therefore survives the flood and creates a whole generation of God-fearing people, but Davka Elohim-fearing people, not necessarily Havaya-fearing people. And and now you can see, I was uh, said before, there are several things that con contrast him to Abraham. So the first was that he didn't uh, try to save other people. God told him, save yourself. He said, okay. And he saved himself and his family, like he was told. Second, um, he, de he, he deteriorates morally after the flood. He becomes drunk. He plants a vineyard and he becomes his end isn't very beautiful. He, he, he's lying drunkenly in his tent. According to sages, it wasn't his tent, it was his wife's tent, uh, which only increases the shamefulness of this whole situation. Of course, he's found naked by one of his sons. All this is very shameful. So although he was righteous, we see him deteriorating, which is a, a very big riddle why this happened. But we don't see something like this in Abraham. And then finally, we have the descendants of Noah, building um, the Tower of Babel. And this is really the epitome of the contrast between the, the, what happens when you 
sin against the name Elohim, and what happens when you sin against the name Avaya? The, in, in a way, the generation of the tower, builders of the Tower of Babel, are the exact opposite of the generation of the flood. Generation of the flood were anarchists. These people are working together with incredible cooperation. You can't build a city and a tower without a lot of logistics and bureaucracy and cooperation. Second, um, um, and it goes together, they're not individualistic. Anarchists are individuals, individually individualists. And they're not. They're working together. And they have, and this is embodied, of course, by the idea that they have one language, one universal language. Incredible. They're not like animals. They're exactly the opposite. They're extremely rational. They've developed very sophisticated technology. They learn how to make bricks. They learn how to make uh, cranes of, of sorts, things that can lift up those heavy stones. And they learn how to, they, they're engineers. They learn how to, how to build a very high tower, the highest tower that was ever built. Um, one of the images, most beautiful images of, of Noah coming into the ark and floating over the waters of the deluge is that in Hebrew the word for ark is teva and teva it also means word, just word. The ark is a metaphor for language. Language is rational civilization building writing books, thinking, writing philosophy, um, thinking deeply upon all kinds of ideas using primarily language, almost, almost exclusively language. And, when you, and, and then you, when you have this arc of words, right, because arc means word, this arc of words around you, you can survive the deluge of very primitive, very low-brow, uh, hedonistic cultures. This is what the academia... Uh, is supposed to be. The academia is supposed to be a kind of arc of words. Uh, the, most of the world can, can be is dealing with surviving or just having fun or, uh, or giving a lot of room to the lower, let's say, faculties of the human psyche, whereas the, 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 what was previously the, the monasteries in Christianity or the Bet Midrash in Judaism, and, and, and now, in the, in the Western world, it's the academia, again, supposed to be. It's, it's a big question if it's, whether it's living up to its ideal. But the ideal is that we have a place that's like an arc of human reason and human high-faculty thinking that can float over the emotional and um, tempestuous waters of the human urges and appetites and can survive above this, untouched by this deluge, by this flood, by this storm. This is what rational people are all about, is they want to rise above their stormy emotions and control those emotions and think rationally about what they want to, to do about, about what's going on within them and, and without them, outside of them. So in a way, building the tower is a continuation of the Ark. The Ark was also a work of technology and culture and sophistication. Language was at its center. Again, arc meaning word, embody, being symbolic of a, an arc of, of words. And the tower is built with words, with language, with a lot of in intellectual sophistication. So you have a very, very sophisticated culture, which is now building this city. But as we said, so the, the word Elohim doesn't come down into the world 
in order to punish them, because they are continuing Noah's sanctification of the name Elohim. And we can say that the builders of, of the, the Tower of Babel were Elohim-fearing people. They, they, they definitely saw themselves as being created in the image of God and being superior to animals. If the generation of the flood was all about going down and down, deteriorating, going down into the earth, corrupting entropy, resembling animals, the generation of the tower are exactly the opposite. They want to go up, 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 up into the heavens, into the lofty realms of, of intellectual thought and philosophy and abstract theology. And that's why they're building the tower. They want to be angels. They want to be as far from the animals as they possibly can. So they're using language and rational thinking and technology in order to go up. So they're God-fearing in the sense that they're Elohim-fearing. They, they know that there's law and order, they know that there are laws of nature, and they know that they need to use their rational faculties in order to manifest the, the fact that they were created in the image of God. However, the fact that the God comes this time, uh, described using the name Havaya, and looks down and says, this is wrong, and then punishes them by taking away their language and dispersing them, this means that they were not sinning against Elohim, but they were sinning against the name Havaya. They were sinning against the name Havaya because they really, ultimately, out of worshipping just Elohim, the external aspect of godliness, the aspect that's rational, and it gives me the rational faculty, and that is all about law and order, by worshipping only that level, they, they worked to hide and, and have the deeper attribute of, of godliness, the one embodied in the name Havaya, to have it completely disappear. They didn't have heartfelt prayers for God, they didn't look up to him asking for mercy, because that's irrational. It's, a philosopher wouldn't beg God to forgive him for anything, because he's too rational for this. He wouldn't address a personal God. The idea of a personal God is anathema to philosophers who are very rational, and people who are sophisticated, and people who believe in language and culture and, and wordplay and, and technology. They liked all this very much, so they really believe in the laws of nature, but they don't believe that there's something beyond the laws of nature, something that can break the laws of nature, something that is comparable to something deeper and more essential within myself that's below or above my rational, orderly self. And this they completely negated. And we can say that by building the kind of technological marvel that they wanted to build, a wide city, not just a tower, it's a tower in a city, it's a big city, it's like a, um, you know, a, what's the word, um, metropolis, a big metropolis city, metropolitan, and also a very, very high tower. All this is to create, to fill the entire space of the world with human creation, like going into New York or any other major city, it's like going into the city and the Tower of Babel in a way, that you, you see everything is man-made, and man is showing off his incredible capabilities that are all God-given, but it's not, you don't feel that it's God-given, because nothing in the architecture or the atmosphere 
or the culture or the language or the plays on Broadway or or the books in the Barnes and Noble's bookstore, whatever it is, they hardly any of them reflect this kind of acknowledgement that we have all this incredible technology and culture and and sophisticated philosophies and ideas. We have all the, all of this because it was given to us by God. It this is a, a place that manifests God. Uh, sorry, well, God and man's. Uh, creative power and his power to to build this incredible worlds and cities and buildings, but it hides the personal deeper aspects of God, the God that we need, not just the God we think about and uh, that we can you know philosophize about, but the God that we pray to, the God that we need, the God that we break down before when we are standing before the senselessness of of a tragedy or before uh, the the constant the prospect of our own death or before uh, our sinful selves when we when we sin so all this is it has to do with the name Havaya Noah sanctified the name Elohim and this passed on to his descendants who took the idea of the ark and expanded it to build a whole city and a whole tower but he all these generations worked against or served to hide and disclose uh, the name Havaya, the deeper, more uh, soulful, more uh, personal, more irrational aspect of, of godliness. All this was, was missing. And this tells us something uh, about, um, about what we asked in the very beginning. Noah embodies the idea that humanity can acknowledge the fact that it was created in the image of God and yet misuse it in a way that works against bringing God into the world, which is the ultimate purpose of creation. It can be used in a way, on, on the one hand, when, when compared to cultures resembling the generation of the flood, corrupt cultures, low cultures, hedonistic, decadent cultures that are all about just the physical aspect of humankind. Com when compared to that, it's incredibly important. It's a righteous person. It's a, it's, it, it's, it's shined with incredible light. And we can even we can imagine that everyone can, God forbid, but everyone can just fade away or disappear just like they, were, they went in the flood and, and, and someone who is, a, who is connected to this kind of human universal ethics would stand tall above them, and, and he would justify all of, all of mankind. This is an incredible description. Again, going back to the interpretation, that he was, an, he was truly a righteous person. So, but it's, it's, again, it's only compared to an, to, a, to an extent to that generation. And, but the same person, the same philosophy, the same kind of worldview, when compared to the higher ideal of believing in a personal God that you face on a very personal level right now, and you don't have all the philosophical, theological answers, and you don't have, you can't build another building or build another you, you know, uh, book of philosophy. It's only 
it would only hide away the very existential, personal contact and confrontation that looks straight into your heart that you get when you think about the Havaya aspect of God, not the Elohim aspect of God. And when, com- when compared to this, Noah and the human technological uh, intellectual marvels that he symbolizes, uh, they become something negative. They become something that is, uh, that is actually a, a stumbling block when we want to get to this kind of deeper connection to God. So, of course, this is a, there's a huge lesson to be learned here for our own lives. When we look at the world today, we can see some very disturbing signals of there being flood generation-like decadence. Uh, you know, gradually, again, it's a generational thing, but gradually uh, coming back into this world with the notions like the, uh, the human animal and the naked ape and, and completely seeing us in materialistic terms. That is, that this only matter exists. And from generation to generation, it's, it becomes worse because people, the new generation is being raised according to these, uh, you know, this way of thinking and these, these images. So we need, looking at this, we need to identify that we need to be able to rise above the stormy waters of these uh, urges and passions and to build an arc of words that can float above this. But then we also have to remember that building this being able to sit down with a, with a serious book and study it and, and be, be rational and not just, you know, let ourselves sink into this lowly kind of culture. We also have to remember that it's not enough and that this very level of human rational higher faculty thinking is also detrimental to what really we need to be focusing on, the highest level, the deepest level, which is the level of standing in a way, without all our knowledge and all our sophistication and all our high language and all our high concepts, and just be very, very simple. In a way, no higher, no better than an animal. It's a, it's a, it's a long route in order to come back to being very, very lowly. The first flood generation were lowly in the most negative sense possible. They said, well, we're just people. We're just human beings. We're just flesh and blood. Let's be like animals. And then the second tower generation were all about, no, 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 we're the very opposite of animals. And here we want to go back to having the lowliness of saying, well, I'm just created, just like this ant or this worm. I'm no better. And this connects me to my needing of Hashem, to my needing of God's presence in my life. And and being connected to this need, it, it's to the, to the intellectual, it seems primitive, but the, we know that it's, it's not going backwards, it's going forward. It's going forward to, really, from the story of the, of the Tower of Babel to the story of Abraham. Abraham is the next stage. Just as Noah sanctified the name Elohim, compared to the generation of the flood, so does Abraham, in the next parsha sanctify the name Havaya, compared to the builders of the Tower of Babel, the intellectuals, the, the technology people. And... Um, and shows us what it's like to stand very privately before God, and God tells you to go into an un- to the unknown, 
and you go to the unknown and then you have to initiate some things on your own, not just follow blindly as Noah did. So this is our thought for this week uh, and are looking at Noah and what he represents between Adam and his descendants and between Abraham and his descendants.